Welcome to Wireframe from Adobe and Gimlet Creative, a podcast about good user experience design and how we shape technology to fit into our lives. I'm Koi Vin, Principal Designer at Adobe. Companies are collecting more and more data about us than ever before, and they're selling that data to the highest bidder. But one thing you don't hear a lot about in these discussions is the role of design. Designers have an enormous impact on how privacy works in the digital world because it's designers who build the default behaviors of apps on our phones, and those designers also build the notifications that ask us to opt in or out of data collection policies. So on this episode of Wireframe, what should designers do about privacy? To tackle this question, we're switching up the show's format and bringing in a panel of leading thinkers from all over the world to talk about digital privacy and design. Georgia Bullen is joining us from Berlin. She's a designer and executive director of the nonprofit Simply Secure. Georgia teaches designers best practices in privacy and security. Welcome to Wireframe, Georgia. Thank you so much for having me. Joining me from Washington, D.C., Amy Stepanovich. Amy is a lawyer specializing in cybersecurity and privacy, and she's the U.S. policy manager for Access Now, an advocacy group where she works to protect human rights in the realm of digital technology. Welcome. Thanks so much. And last but not least, joining me from the Netherlands is UX designer Lika Bela. Lika founded Visual Contracts, a company designing legal documents that are easier for the average user to read and understand. And she's gotten quite a bit of attention for her interactive reimagining of Facebook's privacy policy. If you want to check it out, you can find a link to it on our website. Great to have you here, Lika. Well, it's great being here, of course. Okay, so I want to start out by talking about how people think about privacy. You know, we regularly hear about various privacy scandals at places like Facebook and so forth, but that doesn't seem to deter people from using these products more and more. So, Amy, I want to start with you. From a legal perspective, how much do people actually care about privacy? Well, I think we haven't really been able to exercise a lot of privacy. Um, We have services that we want to use. People want to use them because, really, they're becoming absolutely necessary to use them. Um, If you want to participate in real life and society, you use the services. And as a result of using them, you consent to everything they want to collect. You have no real option to exercise granular control over what they collect. And that will only become more important as we start to see the expansion of items that collect really sensitive data into every aspect of our lives, from our appliances, our toasters, and our refrigerators, all the way through to infrastructure. We have light posts and dams and harbors and roads that are collecting data. And so saying that we don't care about privacy because we're using these services, I think, isn't fair when they're so connected to life and that we don't have any other options, really. Lika Bela, as a designer, what do you think here? Maybe people value privacy, but people maybe not realize how much they value it unless or until something goes wrong. That's exactly the same the same thing with health. You only like experience the biggest pains when something goes wrong. And this is exactly the same for privacy, I would say. Right. So maybe it's too simplistic to say that people do or don't care about privacy. To some extent, privacy is a kind of a luxury now, or at least it's something that comes with education. So, Georgia, from your perspective working at Simply Secure, 
what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I would say actually privacy um, to some extent is is almost a privilege, right? It shouldn't be, <laughs> right. but it it has been. Um, there's a study that, that we did uh, in New York City with low-income communities and their use of technology. The people that were a part of, that participated in it, expected to be surveilled. Like they sort of assumed that, that their data was being collected and, and that they were being watched over. That's their experience in society already. Um, as being a part of the programs in, in the U.S. that you have available to you, right? They, they already knew that that was the norm, and so that's sort of the expectation they have around technology. At the moment, the privacy is something that's only available to the people who are privileged enough to know to ask for it or be able to ask for it in the first place. How can we flip that around and say that everyone has a right to privacy um, and that then you know, it's more about what they choose to share or how they choose to share it, uh, but that their data is theirs because um, it is their life. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, Georgia. I guess as a user, I want to start thinking about how I can access that privilege and how I can have more control over my own data. Amy, what are your thoughts here? Sure. I think one of the things that we're really aware of is there's this conversation happening now around data ownership. Does the company own your data? Do you own your data? And what it means is if data is something that can be owned, then it's something that can be sold. And it facilitates this idea of if you provide money or compensation for somebody turning over the information that is their life, that it should be okay. And that focuses on people who have um, who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and that will only marginalize them further and create more problems. And so we want to move away from ownership and more to those rights-based arguments that are really necessary to protect everybody. Amy, can you think of any real-world examples that illustrate predatory privacy practices and people who uh, have suffered as a result? So some, I mean, right now we're seeing some of these systems about exchanging privacy for money be offered. Facebook, for example, has just started to roll out a service in right now only in the U.S. and India where people can opt into having massive amounts of data collected about them in exchange for money. So it'll be interesting to see how it turns out, but we are aware of what this means in other industries. If you look at payday loans, for example, those are incredibly predatory and they target those at the bottom who need support and resources very quickly and are willing to pay sometimes two or three hundred percent interest and up in order to get that. And if you start saying that you can get some sort of financial benefit from turning over your information that's going to target the people who need that support most and the people who can afford to have privacy. It will be left as that luxury good, you know, and it shouldn't be. So what we really need is a way to level the playing field. And that's actually a good segue into GDPR. So for our listeners who aren't familiar, GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulations. It's an initiative of the European Union. This is one of the things that's at least trying to level the playing field. These are basically privacy laws that companies doing business in the EU have to follow. Otherwise, they'll face heavy fines. And for users, it means that by law, you get to access your data if you want to. So for new companies who are just starting to build their products, GDPR requires privacy to be built in from the start rather than as an afterthought. So again, this is just a European law, 
but it's the first major rule about privacy to take effect. So, Amy, do you think that GDPR is going to influence the way other parts of the world think about privacy? Regulation is coming. GDPR is there, and the EU is a big market. Uh, India, Latin America, the United States, which I never would have said before a couple years ago, would be talking about a federal data privacy law seriously in a way that makes me think that we're going to see one in the next year or two passed by Congress is just, it blows my mind that that's where we are. But those regulations, those laws are coming. And if companies prepare for them now, the growing pains, the need to retool their products later in order to maintain their ability to reach very large markets, it's it's just going to be easier for them to do and they're not going to have to change as much in the future. Okay, Lika, I'd like to bring you in here. You're a UX designer working in the Netherlands, and that means that everything you do has to comply with GDPR. From your perspective, do you feel like it's working? Well, I think in the first place, definitely people find it annoying. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. And it it is overwhelming. It's a lot of work. Also, asking for consent uh, in the right way in the first place, like there's a lot of mix-up. Uh, how to do that, uh, but also just doing that every time, it can also be, from a user experience point of view, can be annoying, yeah. But for actual implementation, indeed, it is a lot that people and, and business need to do. So you have to think of how to apply those in your business and in your designs to make sure that yeah you, you comply with it. Fantastic. After the break... We're going to get down to brass tacks about what designers can do about privacy. We'll be right back. This episode of Wireframe is brought to you by Adobe XD. Design is collaborative. That's why Adobe and the Interaction Design Association started World Interaction Design Day, a day for designers all over the world to share knowledge, compare stories, and learn from each other. Stories being shared in India are different than stories being shared in Europe and in U.S. We think that every designer has a mission to better the world. That's Alok Nandi, president of the Interaction Design Association. Alok likes to say that good design begins with a narrative and a mission. World Interaction Design Day is about the power of interaction design to improve the human condition. With that power comes this year's theme, trust and responsibility. Ethical considerations are part of the roadmap of designing stuff. Trust and responsibility need to be embedded in design decisions, and privacy is part of the equation. World Interaction Design Day is happening on September 24th, with presentations, workshops, and showcases across the world. To find out what's happening near you, go to interactiondesignday.org. Welcome back to Wireframe. With me are three guests. Georgia Bullen, Executive Director at Simply Secure. Lika Balin, UX Designer. And Amy Stepanovich, Lawyer and U.S. Policy Counsel with Access Now. 
Let's talk about the role of the designer in the privacy landscape today. So are designers abetting the situation where most people don't think about or can't even imagine that privacy is something that might harm them somewhere down the road? I don't um I don't think I'd go so far as to say that they're abetting it. I think that's um implies an intentionality to the actions. I, I actually think it hasn't been enough of a topic at the forefront of design practice for us to be able to bring the critical questions that we need to to the design process. We are hitting a time where we can really say, are we asking all the right questions? Like how do we um how can we rethink the way we're doing design so that we can center privacy, so that we can center security and user safety as part of our process? And so I I I wouldn't abetting is strong. I, I was just I I really hope George is right. I just I worry that there is there's more intentionality behind some of the design decisions than we might think. And you click into our service and it says, give us your information and the opt-out button, if you try to click on it, you know, it's hidden in the bottom corner and you mouse over to it, it kind of jumps to a different part of the screen. Um, Whereas the opt-in button is really loud and big and in the center. And those are intentional decisions. Um, You look at a privacy policy, the way it's set up is to be unreadable. And even if you do delve into reading it, it's to say nothing. Really, it provides no actionable information, and that's an intentional decision. And so some of these things I think we need to recognize are being done that are disadvantaging people. So how much are designers aware? I mean, presumably they read the same news sources that everybody else does and see these headlines about privacy. But would you say that most designers see it as a problem that design should address? yeah, if I would answer that, I, I would say uh, designers might definitely be aware, but lack the knowledge of the legal side. What I hear from other designers in uh, corporate uh, business, uh, like working with lawyers, for example, that is something um, that tr- they try to avoid, like, or there's always like a fight, of course. So I think designers are aware, but what they can actually do, that is lacking still. I do think that um, I think privacy needs to become more central to the design conversation and to sort of echo the points that have made. I think Lieke was saying designers are trying to avoid working with lawyers because it's hard, right? I think we have to think about how to approach these as um, kind of everyone needs to be willing to come to the table and rethink somewhat radically how we work on these types of tools. Probably in a lot of cases at a lot of technology companies, a lot of them don't have a lot of designers to start with on staff um, and don't think of them as potential partners in the process. Yeah. Like, I, I love the idea of the visual contracts and making things like super approachable and usable. Um, if you see a good contract that's clear and easy to understand and you know what terms you're accepting, then that is an opportunity to to earn trust um, with, with users, right? Exactly. And then if that carries through to the user experience, like, that just feels like such a potentially wonderful world. <laughs> um, so I sort of, the way I try to think about this is like, how what is the call to action that we need, right? Like, let's talk to your users about how they value privacy and then try to to center that in what you're doing. I was going to, I think one of the calls to action, one of the calls to action that Georgia might be right about is a call for a common terminology. Lawyers, and as a lawyer, like, we're impossible, <laughs> And technologists and designers, like we all have our own acronyms and our own terms of art and our own ways of speaking, and they don't translate to each other in a way that allows common communication. And if we're all going to get in the same room, like Georgia says, which is critical, 
I think we need to start overcoming some of those terminology issues, which means we have to kind of step back from our expertise to get back into that entry-level mode where we can all collaborate together. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that, by getting into the entry-level mode? So, for example, for lawyers, we want to we want to appear to be experts on everything. So we, you know, we talk about the GDPR and we don't say what it means or what's in it. Um, we say PBD for privacy by design, and we talk about these terms and these concepts that are actually really complicated, and we do it in a way that people can't approach. And so when I say get back into the entry-level frame of mind, what I'm saying is step back from being the expert and using the the complicated terms and start talking about those concepts in ways that are accessible. So the, we have to strike the right balance? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to figure out how to. I'm just going to invoke my prerogative as a host for a second and ask something totally off script. It's because I've got the three of you here. And I, I, ge- I genuinely, this is a question I genuinely just want the answer to. Are we just like trying to make tobacco healthier? I mean, is this basically, <laughs> is this basically the situation that we're in? I mean, I, I fully believe that designers can make a lot of these products better for people, but but are, are we ultimately just selling cigarettes? I got a really good question. <laughs> um, I think the I worry that that is what's happening right now, and I think the the sort of challenge I would love people to step up to, and designers in particular, is you know, can we rethink the products, right? Not just, like, can we Band-Aid and try and, like, make tobacco incrementally healthier, but how can we actually, like, radically rethink the way that we are building tools and making privacy, like, a first a first priority, a first value system in, in the products and technologies that we're building? I actually worry about this, this idea, um, because I, you know, I, at heart, am a big tech nerd, and I read sci-fi, and I want that future. I want the technology. And there's no doubt in my mind that social media can be used in horrible and nefarious ways, but it can also be used for great good. Um, We just need to build it right. Okay. So building it right. Let's talk practically here. If designers are going to play a role in this privacy conversation, they're going to need some guidance, right? Lika, you run workshops, you work with designers. What kind of advice do you give? Well, I would say in the first place to become privacy aware yourself and create your own habits of how do you secure your own data. That is something if you get in the habit of of, of that for yourself, you will also be able to apply it in your designs better. Um, so that is really becoming aware yourself is the first step, I would say. And then keeping in mind that most people are not there, they are not aware uh, they have this ostrich attitude, like just stick the head in the ground of uh, talking about uh, privacy and then trying to engage them with like what is happening with your data um, and designing for that. Uh, I think that's that's great advice. Um, Amy, as a legal professional, is there something that you'd like to be hearing from designers in terms of how they might contribute? Sure. Um, the first thing that it would be really useful to hear is how to build more inclusive design teams. It means really listening to a variety of perspectives and having those perspectives represented. And I think that provides a really great basis to make sure that different communities' interests are being represented. I was just saying, I think that's a really good point. Um, And 
So another sort of pragmatic question a designer could ask is, um, who who's not in the room when we're having the conversation? Like, who's missing from our conception of who our users are? Are we saying that homogenous teams are going to produce bad privacy experiences? I think it's more likely for sure. <laughs> just, we started this conversation talking about the privilege of privacy, and I think no matter how many life experiences you've had or how many conversations you've had, you can only put yourself so far into somebody else's shoes. You can't imagine the risks that they are just aware of by virtue of their experiences. And you need to have those different experiences on a team to really grasp and identify risks that need to be responded to. And that can be, you know, marginalized populations includes gender and race as well as socioeconomic background, also just geographically where you come from. You know, somebody from China and somebody from Tanzania and somebody from Brooklyn are going to have very different threat models and very different experiences. Yeah. And not to forget, I would say, I would like to add the the neurodiversity of uh, people. Like, I have ADHD and dyslexia myself, so that is why I know, like, having a different mindset also can help in in many different ways but there are so many so many times also overlooked so if i'm a designer who really feels strongly about privacy in an organization where there's not great awareness how do i advocate for my perspective um the first thing that it would be really useful to hear is the business case for design um you know you you need to take arguments for major changes right up to the executives, up to the C-suite, to get them to give you the freedom to incorporate things that might not intuitively support the, the business model of the company. And so getting designers to talk about how the company is not only acting in a way that they won't be sued, but acting in the best interests of the people who are who are using its services or products. Um, I was just sent a story yesterday in London. There is There are these big screens, and there are now two cameras on the screens that are scanning the crowd in front of the screens and scanning everybody's faces to determine the age and the emotion of everybody in the crowd standing in front of the screens. And for the people standing in front of the cameras, they have no information um, about what those are being used for and how they're scanning, you know, everybody's faces. They might look like just normal cameras. And so design is going to play an important element in that. And we need to be thinking about how to make that more visible. And that starts with designers. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is um, we sort of have this habit of assuming we need all the data (laughs) to be able to potentially use it later to, you know, we want to be able to analyze all the things. And it might be good to actually just flip that. Let's start small and then um, collect less, right? And see what we can do with that and actually work within those as um, constraints that are, again, create opportunities. What are the ways that we can be creative around um, providing the tools and services that could be real opportunities without collecting more data than we know how to be responsible with? And that's something that I think we just need to really be thinking about more um, as as we're trying to to center privacy as part of the design process. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to think of privacy as a real opportunity 
to affect change in the digital world that we're all building. And also at the same time to level up the way designers participate in the creation of that world. I mean, we're always advocating for a seat at the table and here's a chance for us to really drive the conversation in something that's really important to just about everybody. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We have to stop the conversation here. But if you're interested in finding out more about trust and responsibility, check out World Interaction Design Day on September 24th, 2019. You can join one of the many events and workshops happening around the globe or tune into our live stream featuring renowned designers and experts. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Georgia Bullen is the executive director at Simply Secure. Amy Stepanovich is U.S. policy lead with Access Now. And Lika Bela is a UX designer and the founder of Visual Contracts. World Interaction Design Day is a global initiative presented by Adobe and the Interaction Design Association. Find out more at ixdd.org. That's ixdd.org. Next week on Wireframe, notifications are everywhere. They're dinging from our desks, our pockets, and our wrists. And a lot of them are just plain annoying. Our next episode dives into the world of designing the sounds of technology. Wireframe is produced by Laura Morris, James T. Green, Amy Standen, Mathilde Urfelino, and Abby Ruzica. Rachel Ward is our editor. Mixed and sound designed by Katherine Anderson. Original music composed by Billy Libby. And Peter Leonard created our theme music. Subscribe to Wireframe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Wireframe is a production of Adobe and Gimlet Creative. To learn more about the role designers play in safeguarding privacy and security, check out adobe.ly slash wireframe. And for a free trial of Adobe XD, download it today at adobe.ly slash gimlet. I'm Koi Vin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>